Let's start, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to this evening's uh, LSE talk with the uh, CND on uh, telling the story of the peace movement, 50 years of CND campaigning. Uh, my name is Peter Furtado. I'm editor of History Today magazine. Um, and let me very quickly introduce uh, the speakers on the platform. Uh, starting uh, at the end, there's uh, Walter Wolfgang, who has been associated with CND right from its inception and before. Um, next, uh, we have Alid Fisher, who is here at the, uh, at the LSE. He's just been elected the uh, General Secretary of the NUS here. Student Union. <laughs> uh, and he uh, also recently stood for the Green Party for the Great uh, London Authority. Uh, we have um, Kate Hudson, who's the current chair of CND, and on my far right, Bruce Kent, who uh, was uh, chair and uh, general secretary throughout the 1980s and who, like Walter, is a vice president today. Uh, the idea of this evening, I think, is to look at the history of CND over the last 50 years and in a sense we've got four generations of CND activism on, 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 on the platform and uh, each person is going to speak uh, for 10 or 15 minutes talking in personal terms about how they got involved the involvement they had at the, at the time when they were most were or are most active the relationship between what they were doing then and today's issues uh, and then after everyone's spoken we'll have a discussion about some of the points that have come up and, uh, and welcome um, input and discussion with, with yourselves. We've got about 90 minutes um, at the end there is um, an exhibition outside and Sue Donnelly who's the um, archivist here will uh, introduce it and I'm sure take you around afterwards so um, from that point, I'd like to ask uh, Walter, first of all, to talk about his involvement with CND over 50 years, and in particular about, uh, about the early years of the movement. Uh, good evening. Immediately after World War II, there was an an era of passivity. But then people gradually got concerned about the drift of foreign affairs. You had the Korean War and peace with China and I was a Labour I became a member of the Labour Party in 1948 and I got involved with China. Consequently I got involved nationally, I got involved, uh, can you hear me all right? Yes. I got involved, sorry? Yes, is that better? Yeah. I got involved with an organization called Victory for Socialism, which when the Suez crisis began, set up a special subcommittee together with the Movement for Colonial Freedom called the Suez Emergency Committee and we organized a demonstration against Suez which we handed over to the Labour Party in Trafalgar Square as soon as the Labour Party was committed against the Suez War. And with that, a ferment was started in Britain. Before that, 
uh, a lot of people, myself included, thought, thought, thought the demonstrations were old hat. They were something for old people, not for us. But now a ferment was starting, and people were beginning to ask questions about uh, the hydrogen, about the atom bomb, and ultimately the hydrogen bomb. There was a great deal of concern about the effect of tests, but there was also a lot of concern about the effect on the Cold War. And it was seen that that would heighten the Cold War, would make the possibility of conflict more intense, and people began to realize what the Hiroshima bomb was done. Now, as a consequence of that, there were a series of newspaper articles by Kingsley Martin, Cameron Collins, and others, and CND was formed in Victory for Socialism threw off another subcommittee called the H-Bomb Campaign Committee. Uh, we ran a demonstration in Trafalgar Square in 57, I think, yes. And then CND was formed early in 58. And I got involved as Secretary of H-Bomb with the new left, which then had a club in the West End, of which uh, Ralph Samuel, who was prominently uh, connected with the history workshop and therefore with our chair, uh, very, was very active. And they wanted, most of these people wanted a demonstration at a base, so the people who were concerned about the age form could in fact show their concern somewhere. Other people uh, around the Direct Action Committee had thought of demonstrating in Aldermans. CND couldn't organize a demonstration because the committee at that time didn't believe in it and it didn't have the resources either. It didn't have them. The local groups were just in the process of formation, uh, although quite a number of them had been established. So Peggy Duff uh, brought uh, the editor of Peace News and myself together with the view of us discussing whether we could have a joint demonstration. Well, we did. And uh, I decided the best thing to do was to back the Order Master Project, and I persuaded Frank Alon, likewise, and you, Jenkins, and the three of us then persuaded the Edgecombe Campaign Committee. And so... <coughs> The Aldermaster March Committee was formed and it took on. I was part of the loudspeaker drive in London uh, and suddenly people began talking about the bomb. And when the march came, uh, contrary to some publicity we've had recently, we had about, uh, we had about 2,000 people or so on the square. Not all that many, but we thought it was a lot. And then, after four days, we had an enormous meeting at Aldermaston, namely 800 people. Now, subsequent to that, in subsequent marches, which were in the other direction, uh, the Aldermaston meeting was much bigger. But to have a meeting of 800 people in a place which was basically nowhere in the post-war era was news. 
and then CND took off. A lot of people who weren't aware of it became aware of it through the march. CND groups <coughs> were formed throughout the country. And of course, I uh, retained my work in the, in the Labour Party, and I would later on became prominently connected uh, with Labour CND. And in the Labour Party, we, Anar and Bevan, defeated us initially. But in 1959, we won the Labour Party. In 1960, you Gates go with a speech, fight and fight and fight again, reversed the decision. And then we had a period of difficulty. Uh, but then in the early 80s, the decision was reaffirmed. It was reaffirmed, and ultimately we got Labour committed uh, to uh, the abolition of growth and trident and unilateral nuclear disarmament. But there was a lot of opposition from within the party. Meanwhile, the movement had become active. It had become active, diversified, and the diversification also spread into direct action on the, 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 the Committee of Armando. And then after that, at the end of the 60s, um, there was a line. And later, in the 80s, there was uh, a new revival. And in the 80s, we got a new commitment from the Labour Party to unilateral nuclear disarmament, which was only reversed after sabotage from the present Lord Kinnock, Neil Kinnock. And in the 1984 conference, he tried to get rid of the commitment and didn't, but he, did, he got rid of it two years later. We managed to reinstate it in the 90s, but it was ignored. And the last time it was reaffirmed was in, 19, in 1995, I believe. And after that, in 1996, it, it was turned down. 1997, democracy in the Labour Party was abolished. And that was a consequence of our relative success. And we're now trying, in the Labour Party, to get both that commitment back and the democracy back. But meanwhile, there's been the wave in the 80s, an enormous concern about the Cold War, about Cruise Retirement. But when the Cold War finished, the situation didn't become better. The situation, after a few years, became worse. You had, you already had the aggression against Vietnam in the 60s. You then had the first Gulf War. You had the aggression against Yugoslavia and ultimately the second uh, Gulf War with Iraq. And with that there arose a new consciousness and today there is a wide audience both for nuclear disarmament and for ending our commitment to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and avoiding one in Iran. And this goes very wide indeed. And with that, 
there has been a revival of anti-trident uh, anti activity in the Labour Party because they are now projecting a new generation of trident, uh, which was of course passed by Parliament with Tory votes, which you would expect. But the argument isn't finished, the argument goes on, and I'm in fact involved in initiatives now uh, inside the Labour Party to proceed that argument further. But outside, there has been an enormous, there has been this enormous protest against Iran of two men. And the movement against an involvement which would ultimately mean a nuclear conflict uh, is stronger today than ever. The concerns are coming together. Now, right from the beginning, the struggle against the bomb, right from the beginning, the struggle against Western aggression against the third movement has always been a race against time. Yes, we were making comments. Yes, people were thinking more about nuclear weapons, although at present, in spite of the consciousness of the dangers, uh, people have almost began to live with a bomb. In spite of that, the, the consciousness was rising all the time. But at the same time, although there were ups and downs, the danger also escalates. And in my view, you are in a position now where we are in greater danger than we have ever been before. Because the United States, the United States policy has always veered between two poles. One is genuine anti-colonialism and the other one uh, was, was pronounced by Teddy Roosevelt, I think it was in 1904, as a corollary to the Monroe Doctrine and asserted the right of the United States to interfere in the affairs of South America. President Bush has extended this to the world and the consequence of course is the missile defense system whereby the United States hopes to dominate space and hopes to be able to attack any country and it has asserted the right to do so in spite of its obligation to the United Nations. Now this is the great danger we are in. And because of what's happened in Europe, there's a discussion going on in the United States. There's a discussion which has flowed over into the presidential campaign of the United States. And there's a discussion over here. And I think our movement can contribute to this discussion. I think we can ultimately get rid of nuclear weapons by this country. It will, it will be a struggle, as I say, I'm involved in some initiatives now. It will be a struggle, it will be a struggle to do it. Because conservative, in their opinion in this country, is strongly wedded to it. And conservative opinion in the Labour Party is wedded to it as well. But that is beginning to melt. But the question remains, is it all happening fast enough? Possibly yes, uh, possibly not. Only future 
future historians can tell. But if they don't succeed, there may not even be future historians. But meanwhile, there are more people conscious today than there have ever been before that there is a problem. The question, however, is how far for these people this problem is a priority, uh, which it was a great priority for some of them in the 80s, a great priority for some of them now. But that is the question. In other words, we've got a struggle to make people conscious of the threat. We've also got a struggle to make them prioritize it. And I think CND is involved in both these struggles. And lately, it has had some successes. Has had, has had some successes in the Trident debate. And, of course, there is now the, the, the fact that there is a revulsion against the war in Iraq forced to change the Prime Minister. Unfortunately, the present Prime Minister isn't withdrawing from Iraq or Afghanistan. We'll have to do something about that. But it, it will come. And possibly we cannot have a repeat of that war. But possibly there will be an aggression <coughs> against Iran. So there are a number of question marks. But we will be in a worse position even than we are today unless there had been a worldwide movement against the bomb. And Britain has in fact spearheaded this movement and is continuing to do so. But we cannot do it alone. We could never do it alone. But it is a contribution which we can make and in the process of course we will actually become safer in an unsafe world so the struggle continues it's up to you it's up to you and me together we can succeed we shall overcome very wide-ranging introduction, Walter. Thank you very much. And maintaining a rough chronological approach, I'd like to hand over to uh, Bruce Kent to tell us about his original involvement and his position today. Well, thank you. Good. Um, I, I've um, been asked to uh, deal with the 70s and 80s, which I do. I got involved with CND, I suppose, sometime in the very early 60s, um, uh, and I came in through the Catholic peace organization Pax Christi, which got me interested in uh, the immorality, because that was the main thrust that I had, the wickedness of being willing to kill or threaten to kill hundreds of thousands of other people. So that's how I entered into it. I wasn't um, active in the sense of being uh, on any committee or anything until probably sometime quite late in the 60s. I've forgotten exactly when, although I was active in Christian CND. And I felt that, um, I, unlike Walter, I wasn't a member of any political party, and I had no real political dreams that something was going to happen. I just felt this was an absolutely vital cause that should be, uh, should be continued, that someone had to carry the torch um, with this, even though everything around about looked very gloomy, and we were clearly not, after Harold Wilson's um, reversal of 1964, uh, there was no question of any great mass movement, uh, quite the opposite. CND was gradually uh, diminishing, um, 
uh, once the Polaris submarines have been launched, any kind of national interest, I think, effectively disappeared. Um, the CND itself became rather ritualistic that it would march to Aldermaston or back from Aldermaston, whatever the, the case may be, on a kind of annual basis, and the press would ring up and say, how few are you going to have this year? Uh, what are you doing at Aldermaston? As if this somehow going to Aldermaston was the beginning and the end of CND. But uh, we also got ourselves completely out hooked up, I believe, on the one word unilateral. I completely uh, defend the idea uh, my, my life's for it of getting rid of British nuclear weapons but somehow we became in the public mind concerned only uh, with British nuclear weapons. The word unilateral uh, became the kind of slogan you were a unilateralist or you weren't a unilateralist and I think personally it should have been I'm a disarmer um, uh, in, in that package, unilateral actions multilateral actions, bi regional bilateral and so on but we never managed I think to convey that to the great pleasure of the Tories in the 80s who said that we were one-sided, and if you translate the unilateral, that's exactly what it means, one-sided disarmers. And uh, that was a, an own goal that I think was one that was difficult for us to overcome. Well, the 70s went on. There were little blips up and down. I remember a wonderful affair up at uh, Faz Lane doing a, a, mo a model or a mock um, exorcism, driving the devil out of the submarines, which was a great fun. The police all stood back highly respectfully. We all had prayers. We read them all out. We were splashing holy water on the gates of uh, Faz Lane. And the people thought, my God, this, this chap's got some powers nobody knows about. Something's going to pop into the sky in a minute. So we got great press from that. So we had very good episodes like that. Um, and over the neutron bomb, there was a certain uh, rise in the European interest. A neutron bomb campaign gave, it, gave CND a little flip at that time. Uh, we did prepare, the National Peace Council was very um, active in this, we did prepare for the first special session on disarmament of 1978 in the New York, although quite honestly I don't think one in 20 members of CND even knew there was a first special session going on in New York because that was not the focus. The focus was very much on British nuclear weapons. Um, um, uh, but we did manage uh, later on to take people to the se second special session and to begin to internationalize our message in a more, I think, in a more convincing way. Anyway, I arrived on the scene. I'm look looking at my watch carefully. I arrived on the scene um, in the hot seat of General Secretary of CND in January of 1980. And at that time, CND occupied a very small room, Great James Street, at the top of the, some stairs. It had, uh, I think, three and a half members of staff. Um, uh, it had a couple of typewriters. Um, and it had some very um, cross tenants underneath, not our tenants, but tenants of the building, uh, when we began to take off, because quite extraordinarily, and utterly nothing to do with us, um, CND suddenly sprang into national prominence um, in an extraordinary fashion. And I've always wondered what particular factors brought this about. I think one of the most important factors was the uh, national campaign on civil defense, because suddenly we were, the country was being told uh, that uh, nuclear deterrence didn't always work. Otherwise, what's the point of having a civil defense? It didn't always work. And these were the remedies. If, you, if it didn't work, then you whitewashed your windows, you hid under the stairs, you took in plastic bags for sanitary purposes, and after 14 days, uh, the mother's union or somebody would bring you some sandwiches. Well, this was so ludicrous, the whole thing completely ludicrous, that uh, the country absolutely woke up. That was one major thing, I think. The other was the decision about um, Trident submarines. We, we had all thought, I think the country as a whole had thought, surely this debate will end when Polaris comes to an end, and suddenly we were going to spend $5 billion on, uh, on a new generation of Trident uh, submarines. 
the, the cruise missile announcement, which was December, I think Francis Pym in Brussels uh, came up with that, that cruise missiles would come here, and they had a kind of resonance quite unlike submarines, because cruise missiles meant things mounted on lorries run, running around the British countryside, and that's rather different from seeing something slip out of Holy Lock and disappear into the Atlantic, and that caused an enormous um, uh, concern that these instruments largely, because we never got that quite clear, under American control, they would be fired when the Americans want, there would be consultation, but there was no question of a dual key, um, and this created its own um, special alarm. And then, of course, there was the question of, uh, of uh, the kind of language that was being used uh, by some of the militarists on both sides, but especially on the American side, talk of uh, fighting wars in Europe and, uh, and how long they would last and so on and so forth. And all this... Uh, really shocked the British public. So we all of a sudden, we had a membership, I remember they were kept in little shoe boxes, our membership cards in those days, and I suppose if there were 3,000 of those cards, I'd be surprised. Um, and uh, as history developed, we discovered about 500 of those were dead. Uh, so we were a very limited membership. And all of a sudden, they started to come in week by week more and more and more and I, I was very slow off the uptake. I didn't realize really what was, what was happening at all. We kept a graph on the wall with a pencil each week, 200, 300, 400, 500. The graph actually went across the ceiling before we'd finished. Um, and uh, we had to move offices because the tenants downstairs were getting very cross as people stumped up and down the stairs buying 500 badges and this, that and the other. And the staff began to increase. We moved from the three and a half to something like 25 or 30 staff within 12 months. Quite chaotic. There was no plan of expansion and nobody knew what contracts they were on, no one knew specifically what job they were doing, the jobs were there, so people came and uh, either as volunteers or paid staff got, went, on, went on with them so it was an, a quite extraordinary time utterly invigorating um, and I was really privileged to be there um, I remember at the beginning of 1980 at a council meeting saying there's no point us hiring Trafalgar Square for a big demonstration in October of the UN disarmament day, which was, had been proposed by someone, because in 1979, we'd only managed to half full fill the basement of the big Methodist Central Hall. We, had, we hadn't half the basement, 600 seats, and we just about filled that. And I thought, well, for God's sake, we don't take Trafalgar Square and look like complete idiots. Well, as a matter of fact, I was utterly wrong. By the time that came, Trafalgar Square was completely full. I was on the platform looking absolutely amazed as these banners kept coming down Coxburgh Street towards the thing. And from then on, we had three or four years of absolutely astonishing um, numbers and development and interest around the country. And the great, I think the great value of CMD then was that it was like a flat balloon, uh, but the balloons were all there. So they, they all swelled up and they all re reinvigorated themselves and new groups and little groups uh, middle wallop against the missiles suddenly became middle wallop CND or middle was affiliated to CND so we had a, con a constitutional structure which all these bodies that began to develop could fit into and so we had uh, there we had the ordinary groups and regions we had Christian CND we had trade union CND labor CND at one stage a green CND we almost had a Tory CND something called uh, uh, um, Tories against Cruz and Trident tax I think actually it was a bit of a front organization because the organizer that was in our office, but still, uh, <laughs> they, our hearts were in the right place on that one. So that was the, the outside, this enormous sudden, sudden development which we simply weren't ready for. 
and which I think really one way or another we managed it fairly well because it was such an extraordinary surprise and all that ended and I'm going to end my period of this discussion really with, with Gorbachev when Gorbachev arrived on the scene uh, then suddenly the whole tone of the Cold War ended and here was a man talking reasonable humanity um, and uh, actually doing sensible things like having unilateral uh, stoppings of nuclear testings and things like that. Suddenly we were talking about a human being and they couldn't make him into one of these spaceless monsters that they presented us with. But what I think I, I would like to get over in the just, as I just finished now is the, the level of hatred of animosity of CND was quite extraordinary. I don't think anybody today knows that unless they've been through it. Once, once we were, when we were 3,000, 2,000 people, well, who cares about CND? You know, it's like having the, the local knitting club or something. But when CND became to be a political force, which actually I don't think it was because it demanded so much, as the press said, unilateral disarmament, they thought meant nothing. Um, uh, nevertheless, we were seen to be a, a great political force, and the hatred was simply um, I incredible. I mean, the, the abuse and so on that went on, the, the kind of uh, insults. I mean, here's a cartoon we put together. For God's sake, belt up, that's about me. My debt to the Reds, that's about me. CND holds hands with the IRA. We were even blamed for IRA bombings. Um, as a lovely cartoon Cummings, I don't know who Cummings is but he's a very vicious gentleman here my Easter on my knees in front of the television cameras rather than being in church, he gave his soul to save our bodies, a blissfully funny comedy, he says Pravda, the missionary, that's me again and here I am sitting in a, in a prayer, I'm praying to Andrew Popper this time and in the, in the, the saints niches by the wall is Saint Kinnock, Saint Foot and Saint Ben, all those were equal villains that Kinnock managed to get out of that niche and he's somewhere else at the moment, but uh, the others probably. So that the animosity was colossal, really was. The accusations of funding from the Soviet Union never stopped. I had to offer, I, had, I remember writing an article for Pravda and getting a check in rubles and I sent it, I was so terrified of this check in rubles, I sent it to Oxfam, I said, please give me a receipt saying that you receive this in rubles, because I can't be touched with any of these rubles. And then there was the Soviet funding, and I said, well, I'm not going to give you our funding list, how can I? Uh, but what I'll do is I'll invite the Archbishop of Canterbury, I thought he was pretty well upstage and super, I said, he can have the list, and if he can find any Soviet agents on it, fine. Um, and I said, if anybody can offer me any evidence, they can have a hundred pounds or something as a, as a gratuity from CND. Well, nobody ever did, but that didn't stop the thing going on. Lord Chalfont, Frank Chappell, um, all these people continued in the, in the safety of the House of Lords talking about the funding. Reader. So it was a very interesting time indeed. And I think that uh, uh, I, I certainly haven't given up. I'm working on all the things that Walter's talked about, the, the, the treaty that's needed, the uh, NPT and so on. But uh, it was a most invigorating time, invigorating time to be alive. Sorry if I've gone slightly over the ten minutes. Right. Thank you. <laughs> Next, I'd like to ask uh, Kate Hudson to tell us a little about CND after Gorbachev. Uh, I was going to tell you about how I came into it, which was before Gorbachev. Okay. <laughs> um, my first memory, I think, of, of CND was actually on one of the big demonstrations that Bruce was talking about in the early 80s and seeing this little white dot on this platform in Hyde Park, miles away, 
over this massive sea of hundreds of thousands of people, which was, of course, Bruce Kent. <laughs> um, and it was many years uh, before I actually got to meet Bruce. But I think for me and many people of my age and generation, Bruce Kent was this kind of iconic figure who, uh, whether you like it or not, <laughs> modestly, um, stood for CND, which at that time was the most extraordinary social movement, whether or not you think it was politically significant or whether you thought it had the right message, it stood for sanity against absolute nuclear insanity. And that was something which expressed and articulated what hundreds of thousands of us felt at that time. I graduated from university in 1980, and I think a very, very strong sentiment at that time amongst millions of people was fear that we were going to be killed in a, in a nuclear disaster, a nuclear uh, holocaust brought on by the Cold War. I remember genuinely feeling terrified that I was going to die. And of course, at that time, there were a number of very, very effective films, books, pamphlets, and so on, which really informed us about those issues. Not only things like Protest and Survive, which was brought out in response to the rubbish about nuclear bunkers and things like that, but also films, I mean, from the 70s, there was the war game, but new things like Threads, you know, which was about shown on television, what would happen if a bomb was dropped on Sheffield, you know, and the kind of terrible um, things that people, would, ordinary people would go through in the struggle to survive. Um, when the wind blows, for example, you know, about the, done as cartoon figures, but how people would die of, slowly of radioactive poisoning and all those kinds of things. I think it really brought home to us what uh, nuclear weapons meant. And I wasn't in any sense a kind of CND activist at that time. I was just part of this mass mobilization which was going on, which meant I, meant I went on those mass demonstrations. And it also meant, as a woman, that I went to Greenham. And I think that that's another kind of angle of the protest that was taking place in the 1980s as well. A diverse range of methods of protest, not only the big demonstrations, not only lobbying, writing to your MPs, doing local street stalls, but actually going out there to these bases and to the places where the cruise and Pershing missile, cruise missiles were going to come. Above all, of course, Greenham hit the headlines. There were other peace camps, but the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp um, was perhaps the most well-known, not only in Britain, but around the world. And it was a great inspiration at that time to peace campaigners. And uh, my main memory of, of the Greenham activity was in 1982, December 1982, um, going up to the Embrace the Base event at Greenham, you know, where I think there were 35,000 women went there to Greenham on that day. I think everyone was absolutely staggered by how many people were there. But I remember at the time just thinking, I have to be there. You know, me and all my friends from college, we all felt we had to go. Even if we didn't totally understand the details of what was going to happen at Greenham, we felt we had to be there. And that was the power of the movement at that time. It became a kind of moral issue and something that if you were concerned about humanity, you had to be involved in it. And I think that that is one of the enormous strengths of CND, right from the start, up until now, that it's a very humane movement, it's kind of got a great moral high ground, you know, there are many arguments against nuclear weapons, the cost, all those kinds of things, the legality, but fundamentally there is this great moral core 
um, to CND. And um, I think some of the things that have meant most to me as an activist has been the commitment. You know, I can see people here who've been in CND for decades, not just on the platform, but in the audience, you know, very selflessly and tirelessly over decades, putting in a huge amount of work through good times and bad. You know, Walter's talked about the 50s, Bruce has talked about the 80s. There were also lull periods, you know, where it was incredibly difficult to keep the movement going, you know, and to generate interest. And, um, of course, the lull phase that I remember really was the 1990s, you know, the 80s, the great activism, then Gorbachev on the scene, the end of the Cold War, the INF Treaty, which actually um, dismantled thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons. I think many people who had been active felt now nuclear weapons had gone away and there was no longer a threat. So all that kind of most of the activism and enthusiasm against nuclear weapons dissipated in the early 1990s. That, of course, was a great mistake because they didn't all go away. In fact, it was the early 1990s when Trident was actually brought into Britain and the Trident nuclear weapon system was introduced. Um, but nevertheless, people felt that to be the case. And so CND was, I think, during the 1990s, much of the 1990s, was really hard-pressed to maintain that sort of sustained high level of interest. I mean, there were, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of campaigning going on, but actually attracting people to events in large numbers became very, very difficult. But that ended, that kind of or the, it began to end, it began to change in the late 1990s, which of course I know this because that's when I became <laughs> re-involved in the late 1990s. And there were, there were a number of issues which began to make me and other people aware of what was actually going on. I think the first, um, or one of those was certainly NATO expansion in 1999. You know, Warsaw Pact had been dissolved in the early 1990s. Many people thought that NATO would go the same way. In fact, I remember an article in Sanity written by E.P. Thompson expressing shock that NATO hadn't dissolved itself along with the Warsaw Pact, you know, but it hadn't. And not only that, it expanded in 1999. It engaged uh, immediately, I think 10 days after expansion into Central Europe, declared war, uh, illegal war on Yugoslavia and it also changed its mission statement. It was no longer a defensive organisation. It was entitled to act in, uh, engage in out of area activities. You know, so it was a kind of military expansion and development um, and it became clear that this new world order of peace and harmony which we've been promised after the end of the Cold War wasn't coming on stream. So there was that and then the thing, a further thing, which I think was particularly significant for me, was um, the United States kind of redevelopment or kind of bringing back to prominence of their national missile defence system. You may remember that in the early 1980s, President Reagan had introduced this kind of so-called so Star Wars initiative, the Strategic Defence Initiative, which was to construct a series of lasers and radars and missiles. Uh, missiles and so on which would shoot down incoming missiles. That had kind of gone on the back burner. But in the late 1990s that came to prominence again. There were two bases in Britain, Filingdales and Menwith Hill, which were involved in that and the United States 
expressed the intention to withdraw from the anti-ballistic missile treaty in order to pursue that system. So there's kind of escalation of military activities and so on coming from the United States. And it was at that point that there was an interest, a new interest in CND from the younger generation. There was a wave of setting up of student CND groups. There was a new student CND network that developed and people began to come back into CND because they could see something was going on. They weren't necessarily quite sure, but they could see that something was going on, and that is how I became involved in CND. I, li I live in London, so I um, became involved in London Region. I can see here the person who persuaded me that I should stand as London Region Chair, <laughs> which I did, and in, I think, 2000, I became Chair of London Region CND. And then two years later, I stood um, to be, or one year later, I stood to be Vice Chair of CND. And that um, conference, CND National Conference, which I was elected at, uh, I think was five days after 9-11. Um, so it was quite an extraordinary time, really, to come into the leadership of the peace movement because a vast number of things changed. You know, I mean, for CND, but for everybody. You know, this sort of new global tension, the dangers of terrorism, the dangers of war, all those things came together at once. And I think it was a, a challenge for CND, perhaps not quite on the scale as the challenge of the 80s, where you found CND sort of leading the movement and articulating the public sentiments, but certainly uh, getting on for that kind of thing. And it, I think it was a challenge for CND as an organisation which has sort of been in a bit in the doldrums, you know, how to respond to these new challenges, you know, what to do in this new context, um, war, you know, the issue of nuclear weapons was very much coming back to centre stage as well. And I think CND uh, responded very well to that. There were a small number of people who didn't really think that CND should be engaged in anti-war campaigning. That has always been a debate throughout CND's history, every time there's been a war, should CND uh, be involved or not. But I think overwhelmingly people felt that we should take a position, not least because people radicalised around the anti-war issues are going to be interested in anti-nuclear issues. You know, if CND is not just going to be some kind of thing in a ghetto about some particularly nasty piece of weapons, they have to be engaged in um, broader political issues and particularly engaged in the issue of war because war is where nuclear weapons will be used. So we made a conscious decision to sort of go out there, take the anti-nuclear issues out into the wider anti-war movement. And that's what we've done. Um, Walter's mentioned the Trident replacement issue. We've become very, very, um, well, at the top of the political agenda and attracted many, many new members as a result of that. Um, and CND today is a very, very healthy organisation. In terms of membership, we've had thousands of new members over the last couple of years, with um, lots of new groups, affiliations and so on from trade unions and other organisations. So um, I think we've adapted and prospered and been flexible. If I had to put that down to one thing, um, which I see as a very strong continuum throughout CND, it's the fact that we are a grassroots membership organisation. You know, if you look back at CND's founding statement from that meeting in Westminster Central Hall, our goals then 
are the same as our goals now. It's unfortunate we haven't achieved more of them, but the fact that we are true to our vision of a nuclear-free Britain and a nuclear-free world, I think, is remarkable. Um, we have um, always, virtually always been in opposition to government policy, but we've been able to main, maintain that in a principled fashion. And I think because we have um, a democratic organisation, because our policy is made annually by our, by our members, because our leadership is elected on an annual basis by the members, we are able to maintain and be in touch with both our membership and the demands and concerns of ordinary people. So I think that CND, to conclude, is a remarkable organisation. I feel very uh, proud to be involved with it in any way. I think it's got great strength from long-standing members with great experience. And it has great strength from newer members and younger activists as well who see our issues now as relevant today, if not more so than they were 50 years ago. Thank you. Uh, and finally, uh, Aled Fisher, who I think is reluctant to be seen as a token member of the younger generation. <laughs> Even so, I think he's going to tell us about how, how CND looks. I'm, I'm quite happy to be seen as a, as a token member of the younger generation, yes. I've been advertised for this event as the Students' Union Environment Ethics Officer, but as was mentioned at the start, I'm very proud to say that I've been elected as General Secretary, so I'll be full-time here next year once I get the sort of small irritation of exams out of the way. Uh, and as was also mentioned at the start, I've been involved in the Green Party. And when I got involved at 17, one of the people radicalised by, by the anti-war movement, by what happened in Iraq, um, what you find is that there's an anti-nuclear consciousness absolutely ingrained in the Green Party. Every woman there over a certain age was at Green in Common. Everyone there was in Green CND in the 80s, and that's when a big influx of our members uh, sort of came in. That's when we became a real political party in one sense. So it's absolutely ingrained in the consciousness of everything we do. Now, my brief experience of, of anti-nuclear activism will definitely inform the kind of campaigning activist students union I want to bring back next year, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. I think my first experience of anti-nuclear things was writing in the slightly comically named newspaper here at LSE, The Beaver, um, and I used resources from CND, and I'd go on marches and I'd see Kate speak, and, and Kate, you've, you've talked about Bruce being an iconic figure, but you are yourself as well, I think it's fair to say, uh, and, and, and definitely selfless and tireless campaigner as well. And I think also a voice for sanity. And having CND at all these marches almost gives it an even greater sense of importance, I think, um, because it's such a, such a well-received and such a, a broadly acknowledged good thing to be doing. So uh, last year, I, I took part in something called Students Against Trident, or Strident, Tent State, which was a five-day camp as part of the Faslane 365 movement, which was blockading the nuclear base in Faslane in Scotland for... 365 days, you'll be surprised to hear. And um, basically, they were very scared of having all these students come up to this little village. And um, what you do is you form, anyone, well, most of you here have probably been involved in some kind of direct action, but you form little affinity groups of about 10, 15 people, and you, all, you go and do the blockade. But because we'd advertised it being a five-day thing, and Saturday was the third day, my affinity group, when we went down there, were outnumbered by police by a factor of two, maybe three to one. So as soon as we got out of the, uh, of the car, we all uh, sort of bundled into... Well, I got bundled into a puddle, actually. Um, 
But it was very difficult to, to feel any antipathy towards the police, especially as they were coming over and asking, you know, what do you do at university? Uh, what, you know, what are your interests? And that kind of thing. They were very, very nice. And it was actually the day, sadly, it was actually the day of the, the uh, Glasgow bombings as well. Um, so they, they let us out, and, and we, we the next day said, we won't do any blockading because you've got more important things to worry about. And so there was a, it wasn't just all sort of uh, anti-capitalist students railing against the, the force of the state. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a generally sort of a, a, a true dialogue, a relational kind of thing. So I was arrested for, and my parents are in the audience here, they know about this, don't worry. I was arrested for, for resisting arrest, which meant just lying in, in the puddle, um, motionless. And ironically, I was arrested for breach of the peace, which is what they get you for. Now, it is quite difficult to arrest a missile, but I think there was a slightly larger breach of the peace present that day. What struck me most from being in Fazane was the contrast between the rural landscape, the serene water on the lot, the huge wooded areas, the rich wildlife and natural environments, the quiet country life, the small little villages, the remote beauty of the place, and the stupidity and terror of nuclear weapons. It was made really terrifyingly clear, really terrifyingly clear, whenever a submarine passed on its way out of the lock. These things are enormous. They're so scary. And, and the intimidating size and power brought home the fact that, that these things are real. They're tangible. You, can, you could literally touch them if you were unlucky enough to get in the water. And these are made by humankind to destroy untold members of humankind themselves. It's absolutely surreal that in this little location with its one tiny post office and its little tiny school and its little church, there are these huge weapons that hold such danger. And it just shows how far the comfortable reality of everyday life in Britain is from our legacy, our militaristic legacy, and our future, which is guaranteed by Parliament renewing Trident to the tune of as much as £115 billion over the next couple of years. Now, nuclear weapons should be a bigger issue, I think, for students. And indeed, it has been on numerous campuses. We passed motions here at LSE about it, and we, a lot of us went out on a vigil that was held at the time of the, the vote in Parliament, which is a really quite amazing event. I can't really describe what it was like unless you were there, but it was something very inspiring, I know, to a lot of, lot of student activists at LSE and really got them more involved. And I don't need to point out to you that student act activism has been subdued. It's not quite like what it was in 1968. And that's because of tuition fees, top-up fees, spiralling debt that forces students to take jobs to simply stay and study uh, puts immense financial pressure on parents who then pass on that, that pressure to, the, to, their, to their pupils or to children even not, not my parents, so they're very good and understandably, then, you know, students are more focused on their immediate concerns than on the numerous world problems that they could rail about in the past that was part of, I think or should be part of a wider educational experience but that's exactly why students should care so much about them, particularly New Labour's decision to renew them. So, you know, let's put it in perspective. Top-up fees cost about £900 million a year. At the government's absurd own estimates, uh, Trident's going to cost us £15 billion, and as I said, could go up to about £115 billion. Sorry. Now, I may be a social scientist, so I need a calculator to work anything out, but, but something doesn't add up there at all. We live in a society in a world where we value nuclear weapons above education. Uh, these are weapons we can never use. We can never use them, and if we were to use them, we'd ca cause unimaginable horror. But, of course, these, these weapons are, are essential to our security. Now, if my teachers were here, um, they'd tell you that I'm not a very good student, firstly. But they'd also say that if you learn anything from international relations here at LSE, it's that nothing in international society lasts forever. 
nothing can have a kind of ahistorical permanence. It's quite clear that many, if not most, and I would say all countries that possess nuclear weapons, don't possess them because of some sort of security necessity. They possess them for prestige, for the prestige of the nation, for the prestige of the military-industrial complex, if you like, or the scientific community. We're living in what some people call the second nuclear age. The first nuclear age was the Cold War confrontation, but now nuclear weapons are part of the kind of post-colonial building projects. They're absolutely tied up in, in the nature of what a nation is. They're part of that prestige. And mistakes and miscalculations happen in the international arena all the time. Um, but there's obviously one mistake that you, that you can't undo, and that's unleashing a nuclear weapon. It's our example that's leading this. It's Britain. We've no need for nuclear weapons. No country does. We are not, and we have not ever been in a deterrent scenario. And that's even if you buy that deterrence is a reason for holding nuclear weapons. In fact, deterrence, as a theory, is socially constructed. Um, just as the notion of the mutually assured destruction in the Cold War is socially constructed. And, you know, analysts think that way, then politicians think that way, and it becomes objective reality, if you like. But, of course, if someone stops thinking that way, and they realise that it's completely needless in the first place, everything can change, and that's what Gorbachev did, um, and the intellectuals around him. In fact, as we saw in the Cold War, the size of, of weapons arsenals didn't mean a thing. They were so large, they became irrelevant to security calculations. So for Britain's prestige and a place at the Security Council, we're happy to pay $115 billion. That's at a time when hard-working teachers are, and public services are offered below inflation pay rises, when the credit crunch is hitting the most vulnerable in society, when new labour is getting rid of the 10 rate on tax you know, because it needs more revenue, and we're seeing cutback after cutback to our public services. There's never been a more pressing time to get rid of these gigantic white elephants that we call nuclear weapons. And CND has a lot to be proud of in its history. It's Europe's largest single-issue campaign. It can boast a huge number of successes over the past 50 years. And today, it's an organisation that can claim support of the great majority of people in Britain, the vast majority. It's branched out as well, as Kate said, and connected all of these different struggles against nuclear weapons to the wider struggle against war. And the dignity and poignancy of the vigil, as I've described, or at least tried to describe, that was held outside Parliament, where all these MPs came down from so many different parties, MPs you wouldn't think of as part of your movement, but they were there and they felt a part of it. It was, it was something quite amazing. It was the biggest Labour rebellion other than Iraq since 1997. It shows that CND is part of a much wider movement for change, a very important part of it. If anything, it's kind of suffering a dilemma of success, and, and Kate touched on this. Because when I told people I was speaking about the CND, they responded with a kind of a complacency almost. They're like, oh, we're all against nuclear weapons now. There's, there's nothing to be worried about. A sense that so many people support it that there's no urgency. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, with so many MPs voting for it, it is urgent. They're celebrating the issue of, of having nuclear weapons. And we need to start kind of brushing aside th this, this complacency and getting students, in particular, from my perspective, back involved in the struggle as well as all the other groups that are hurt when the government decides to spend money on this and not on you know, good public services, good education, that kind of thing. There's a few aspects I just want to very briefly, very briefly touch on about student campaigning. Firstly, there comes the awareness raising. And we need to be out there making the arguments, raising the consciousness in student CMD groups. Then there comes lobbying and, and direct action, which I've done. And direct action is vital. It's about taking back the power when democratic structures fail. And they have failed absolutely demonstrably in this case. If you look at the majority of public opinion, it's against it. If you look in Scotland, nobody wants these things clogging up their beautiful locks. But the problem with direct action 
is that it, it kind of requires a lot of preparation, a lot of secrecy. It requires small affinity groups working. Professional and experienced direct activists. It's great if they do all the logistical work, but it can mean that these structures aren't very open. You, know, you, don't, know who's, you don't know where the secret society meets, do you? And there are these email lists, and you can get involved, but the same thing kind of happens with another, uh, another kind of campaign that I've been involved in, that's Climate Camp, where very serious, almost kind of professional revolutionaries are in control of it. And although internally the structures are very democratic at the time, it's very hard for, say, an average student who suddenly decides nuclear weapons are an abomination to get involved. So we need to open them up more. And that's where C&D comes in, I think, in building a mass opposition outside of direct a- action as well. Yes, that involves uniting politicians and parties, but more importantly, it's about building an anti-nuclear alliance with trade unionists, uh, community groups, students, and other sections of society that can think of a better use for 150 billion quid. Let me just finish with one very, very quick more ex- example of a more kind of latent but ever-present hidden terror that nuclear weapons could have that even the most kind of seasoned and analysts don't seem to recognise, and that's climate change, which is itself kind of always the elephant in the room. Bear with me on this one. The effect of climate change is set to tear society asunder, we know that, if we don't do anything about it. These effects include flooding, drought, deforestation, desertification, ice caps melting, glaciers disappearing, inhabitable land becoming scarcer, water resources becoming more difficult to get hold of, food security evaporating for good, and I could go on. What that means is hundreds of millions of environmental refugees having to leave some countries in order to find home in others en masse. It means geopolitical tension on a scale we cannot imagine at the moment. We don't know what it's going to be like. And the possibility of, of more conflicts over resources, including water, have a look at sort of Darfur for that. Do we really think that the continuance of the existence of nuclear weapons that can destroy the planet many, many times over fits with a contingency plan for a scenario of runaway climate change? And that's where I'll leave it tonight. But I think we can all agree that 50 years on, the message of CND is as urgent as ever. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's open this out now to a, to a discussion with everybody. Usually at this stage in an evening, the chair muscles in and asks a silly question, but uh, I think there's a great deal of experience uh, in, the, in the hall tonight, so I'll hand it straight over.
ban on nuclear weapons. That was the big thing. And then quite specifically in Britain, uh, I remember a very strong, powerful campaign uh, to encourage the Labour Party not to go, not to accept uh, uh, the proposal for uh, German rearmament. And I, I can't help thinking, when I have my little moments of fantasy, if only we had been successful, and we did get pretty close to it, if only we'd been successful in getting the Labour Party and subsequently the government back in the 50s to reject uh, German rearmament, we could have then worked for a nuclear free uh, Europe, uh, we wouldn't have uh, nuclear bases or NATO bases, and we wouldn't have the threat which we have today of uh, American uh, uh, bases, so-called missile defense bases, right under the noses of the Russians in Czechoslovakia and the rest of it. The world would be a much happier place for, uh, you know, my children, my grandchildren and everybody else's children and grandchildren. But there we are. Uh, we didn't win then, but we are still campaigning uh, today. And uh, I hope we can continue to do so. But I would, did want to mention that there was a lot of campaigning pre-1958. Uh, and without wishing to uh, underestimate the uh, importance of the... Uh, establishment foundation of CND, obviously not. I've been involved since the very beginning. But, I, it's, but historically, I think it's important to mention that other organizations were involved. Right. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much. Anybody? demonstrations, blockades, campaigns have had a very inspiring time, as we've heard. Um, I must say, I wanted to say that I went on the academic blockade at Faz Lane last year, and it was really fun. Yes. <laughs> and they, our signal for getting arrested was, the plenary is about to begin. And as I was the plenary speaker, I kept thinking I was making a brilliant speech because every few minutes there were cheers, but it turned out there were cheers for the people getting arrested. <laughs> anyway, to say all that, but what I wonder, thinking about this whole 50 years, is here we are, uh, 2008, 50 years later, last year the government decided to go ahead with a replacement for Trump. Um, what, why did we fail? What went wrong? And I'd really like to hear what the panel thinks about that. Were there any occasions where we succeeded? I mean, the INF Treaty did succeed, but Bruce was saying it was Gorbachev. Was it us? Uh, and if it was us, what did we do right at that moment? Um, but otherwise, maybe the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, was a, the Partial Test Ban Treaty, was a success. But we've now lost the ABM. So I think we ought to be very reflective 
about where we failed, and that's what I'd like to hear. Why is it that this completely mad trident replacement is still going ahead now? Um, and what? And how should actually CND change if it's going to succeed in the future, which it has to? Would you like to take that first, Bruce? Yeah. Well, I think that's very interesting um, and, uh, and a very sensible challenge. First of all, when do you say you failed? What, what's the period of time in which you say you failed? And uh, that's something I don't think anybody can say. I mean, Wilberforce took God knows how long, 60 years, wasn't it, before he, he did something about slavery effectively in Parliament. Uh, sometimes uh, mental attitudes change very rapidly, sometimes they take a long time, and it's mental attitudes we're dealing with rather than, I think, as much as weapons. I mean, it's very interesting, Mary, you say that, because precisely the INF Treaty, we have on record Gorbachev saying, and I was influenced in my new thinking by Mary Calder, Edward Thompson, Bruce Kent, and I forget who the other ones were. So, I mean, actually, the success you're presenting was actually something that you had a major part in achieving through END and she and other bodies. So uh, that was, I think we've completely rubbish forever, the idea of nuclear civil defense. That's absolutely out altogether. I think we've made ridiculous the idea of nuclear first use, even though it's still the policy of NATO. It's not, uh, it's not credible in any military term. Uh, I think those are certainly successes that we've had, uh, but um, it's all short term. We have still got nuclear weapons, um, uh, but we have opportunities. When, when Henry Kissinger changes his mind and calls for general nuclear disarmament, I think that we're making progress. But how long it'll take, God knows. Thanks. Yes, I, well, obviously I agree with Bruce. We do. Just a few other things. I mean, I think the way you phrased the question made it slightly sound as though we still have nuclear weapons because there was something wrong with CND, you know, and that we were doing something wrong. And I think that that would be a great mistake to think that because obviously CND doesn't operate in a vacuum. CND operates in a kind of an international context where there are great factors at play. You know, and we can be a factor within that, but we are going to be a factor primarily within Britain and working in this wider context. So I absolutely do not think it's due to a failure on CND's part that we still have nuclear weapons. But I do think that um, there have been a number of achievements by the movement, not just by CND, but by the peace movement internationally, whether it's in Japan or wherever, but particularly in the United States. I think that the United States peace movement has had a, a significant impact on US nuclear policy. Um, but just, to, just, just a few examples. You mentioned the partial test ban treaty. I think that that was a, a victory for the anti-nuclear movement, which was greatly contributed to by the peace movement. I mean, obviously, throughout this whole period, the vast majority of nation states have been opposed to things like testing and opposed to nuclear weapons. You know, the vast majority are for nuclear disarmament globally. Um, but I think the, the activities of the peace movement contributed to that very substantially. I think also the fact that nuclear weapons haven't been used subsequent to Hiroshima and Nagasaki is partly because of the activities of the peace movement. And the particular example I'm thinking of is the Vietnam War. You know, I've read these very 
various documents which say that uh, Richard Nixon wanted to use nuclear weapons against Vietnam, but he was advised by his advisers that it would be impossible to do that because of the public sentiment against that. It's also known, for example, the, the, the freeze campaign in the 1980s in the United States. You know, Gorbachev, um, Reagan was persuaded to a more kind of anti-nuclear position or to the, to the freeze campaign's position because otherwise they would have lost the election potentially to the Democrats. You know, all those factors do come into play. I think also Bruce mentioned earlier on the neutron bomb. Uh, there's a very strong body of opinion which believes that Carter withdrew the proposals for the neutron bomb because of the strength of the movement in Europe. I think that the INF Treaty, yes, you can say it was Gorbachev in one sense, but on the other hand, the movement internationally helped to create the kind of the, the... the mood, in a certain sense, the environment, the political environment in which someone like Gorbachev could take those kinds of positions. I don't think you can see any of these things in isolation um, from the others. So I think we we have made um, a great contribution in many ways. And I I was very encouraged recently to read, I can't remember whether it was in the Telegraph or in the Times, Times maybe, but Matthew Paris, uh, the former Conservative MP, who I think in many occasions during the 80s had been kind of, uh, you know, argy-bargy with CND over these issues. He, he was doing a piece about CND at 50, and he said that one of the things that he felt we had achieved was to create a climate, uh, a political climate of opinion, where it was impossible for the government to be gung-ho about the idea of nuclear weapons use. So through our campaigning, we had helped to make it impossible for the government to go down that track. And I think that that is something we have absolutely contributed to British political life and, and internationally as well. Well, uh, what you've got to remember is that people are used to welcoming better weapons but you've now got to the stage where better weapons are a threat. That's what the nuclear weapons means. And also there's no real defense against it. The defensive weapons haven't kept up. That's what the threat means. Now, it takes some time for people to realize what that is. And you've got to give examples. You will not succeed in five minutes. You see, we have succeeded a lot The question is whether we've succeeded fast enough. That's the real answer. If we don't succeed fast enough, it could be the end of history. But hopefully it won't be. So we've got to continue to succeed. But we won't do it all in one gulp. I mean, even if we achieve, and I think we will achieve eventually, a nuclear-free Britain, that will only be a stage to world nuclear disarmament. And I think you need, you need to kind of ask yourself, as Bruce did, what, what is failure, but also what is, what is success? And I think a question that, that I think was Bruce or Kate said earlier is what, what if we weren't here? What if we weren't doing this? Where, where would we be now? I think you can, you can kind of point to, to treaties and these kind of things, but, but 
Gorbachev, you know, was was made as much as kind of born in that sense. He was he was absolutely shaped by reading we- uh, literature from the West, anti-nuclear literature, Eurocommunist literature, and that kind of thing. So I was quite a kind of thrilled to be here with Bruce actually, because you know when we study Gorbachev, we see these things. There was a whole intellectual circle uh, after the Prague Spring in the Soviet Union did that, and, and that's that's a success. But I think if you look at sort of the, the Iraq war and the anti-war movement there, everyone will say, well, we're a failure because the war happened. But I feel like, you know, it's, it's not just about fighting these defensive struggles. We always seem to be in these defensive struggles. We're stopping this. We're anti that. We're, we're going to prevent this. We're resisting that. I think a really important thing that, that CND does in the wider anti-war movement is make it a more positive kind of goal and not just an idea of once we get rid of nuclear weapons, everything will be fine. But there's something a bit, bit broader to having a peaceful world and a peaceful international order. And, and it's, again, tying it to these, kind of wide, these, these much wider struggles, like the anti-war movement, um, like opposition to the attack on Iran. But also saying, beyond that, there are these, these, these wider goals that we want. And if we, if, we, if we always term it in that way, I think we are succeeding in changing the discourse completely. And, and to, come, to come back on what Kate said, not only is it, is it difficult for for politicians in this country to, to sort of to, to talk about nuclear weapons. The, the burden of proof is, is now on them to prove that we need them rather than us having to prove that we don't need them. I think that's really important. Um, slightly following on from that, but thinking more in terms of future developments, um, I was struck by Walter's comment and also Alex's examples that... Um, the issue is, has been raised in people's consciousness, but it's not a priority. Um, and so following on from what you've said, and given that uh, there are always sort of different threats, as it were, it's not, a, it's not within the Cold War, it's within the language of the government. So the government isn't using the language of nuclear supremacy. The UK government isn't, but for instance, the Indian government is, the Pakistani government is, and nuclear tests, nuclear power, are being perceived as a sign of, of international power. Um, so what are the next steps, as it were, for CND within that framework, and specifically within um, what that means for activism? Well, I'm not sure if I quite understood your question, <laughs> to be honest, um, but I'll have a, I'll have a try. Um, I think, yes, there there are, well, there there is an element in the discourse which is about maintaining supremacy and maintaining power. You know, I think that is particularly so for uh, the the original nuclear weapon states. I mean, recently when we had this big debate about Trident, I participated in defence select committees discussions and inquiries about that. And one of the themes that came through there uh, was well, we need to have nuclear weapons in order to have a seat at the top table. You know, we won't be sort of have international status without that. Um, there is an element of that there. Um, I think that it, certainly within Britain, within sort of general consciousness about nuclear weapons, insofar as there is one, I don't think that that really has very great resonance. Um, that, that's certainly my view. I think the fact that. Um, public opinion has has strongly shifted against nuclear weapons is indicative of that. I think people uh, identify other problems and other threats uh, 
climate change, terrorism and so on, and people very strongly don't see nuclear weapons as relevant in any way to solving those problems. Even Tony Blair said that. You know, that was the finding of the Defence Select Committee, in fact. So I think people don't see them as relevant, and they see many of these sort of long-standing arguments and sort of cases for nuclear weapons as something that's from the past. You know, it's, it's a historical thing. But I think certainly in global terms, I mean, you, you mentioned India and Pakistan, um, but I think that in global terms, there is a strong, very, very strong and increasingly strong trend demanding the global abolition of nuclear weapons. And this is something which CND is quite strongly engaged in. When we um, produced our alternative white paper, when the government brought out its white paper uh, wanting Trident replacement, we had a kind of two-prong approach with our alternative white paper. We said, no, we don't want to replace Trident. It doesn't defend us. It's bad. You know, it doesn't help our security. On the contrary, it can lead to nuclear proliferation. It will increase the threats that we face. What should we do instead? Instead, our government should pursue multilateral initiatives. It should, put, should support a nuclear weapons convention. You know, so, again, true to our original goals, which is both unilateral disarmament and multilateral disarmament. Britain should get rid of its nuclear weapons and it should be absolutely engaged and really pressing forward with the multilateral initiatives. And those multilateral initiatives, if sometimes people say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's sort of, you're being utopian, that can never happen. And what I do, I point out to them the scale of international demand for nuclear disarmament. Two years ago in the United Nations General Assembly, there was a vote on whether or not um, a, a nuclear weapons convention, which would ban all nuclear weapons in the same way that chemical and biological weapons are banned, whether that should be pursued. And the quite substantial majority of states voted that negotiations on a nuclear weapons convention should start immediately. And three of the countries in favour of the nuclear weapons convention are nuclear weapons states, China, India and Pakistan. You know, so they may see it as something that they want for the time being or whatever to do with their regional things, but if there's a question of multilateral disarmament on the table, they are there supporting it. And also, I always point out to people, in fact, the entire global south virtually is covered by nuclear weapons-free zones. The trend in the world is towards nuclear weapons-free zones. Countries on the whole do not want nuclear weapons. There are even examples of countries giving up their nuclear weapons. So, you know, it's not a vain hope. And I think the, the kind of idea that they're necessary for power and all that kind of thing, that is believed by an increasingly small number of countries. And the mood, the trend in global politics as well as British politics is for nuclear disarmament. I just wanted to make a, a few points. I remember contacting somebody in uh, Tower Hamlet CND at the time of the two-tone music, and I said, surely, um, Phil, it's something that is black and white, and it's something that um, we very much agree with and understand, and surely with young people being into black and white, we should be doing that. And I remember the whole two-tone music revolution we grasped it and understood that with that um, we could use the CND sign and we could use the, the idea of nuclear disarmament. 
I think the one thing that's important about CND is its name. It's the campaign for. I think that's the one thing that it may be against lots of things, but it's for lots of things. And I think I would like to know how is it that uh, a country like South Africa gave up nuclear weapons and, and what brought it? Uh, we're going to have to wind up fairly soon, so if there's one more comment with some quick answers. I don't have any connection with CMD and I don't have any specialist insight into politics either but I still think I have a good suggestion to increase the influence of CMD. One technique which CMD has never used as far as I know is to name and shame certain politicians and certain media executives. Obviously that there are people in the media and in politics who will publicly, publicly defend <laughs> nuclear weapons. But how many of those people have their families living next door to nuclear power plants where there are risks of their families contracting leukemia? And how many of these media executives and politicians live close to nuclear bunkers where if there's a nuclear war their families can be safe inside the bunkers and if, if, if CND were to name and shame these people who have privileged access to these facilities that might go some way to increase the influence of CND. not a road I would want to take. Um, I, I think that most people who support nuclear weapons are not malicious, wicked, whatever, cowardly or whatever people. They're people who actually think they bring the country security. And I think naming and shaming, maybe for some people it's not what, the way I would go because I think we really have to meet those arguments face on and turn people's minds around. And I think that is what we are achieving all the time. And I think um, the culpability game um, is one everybody can play and uh, nobody comes out of it very well. So I, I wouldn't be for that. I'm sorry. Well, the risk of sounding boring and sycophantic again, I, I agree with Bruce. Um, I mean, I think, well, certainly in our campaigning, we do try to focus on policies, you know, rather than the individuals who espouse them. I'm thinking particularly of all the kind of the anti-Blair stuff. And I'm, I have to say that, you know, I was as angry about some of Blair's policies as everybody else was. But uh, our view was you can get rid of Blair, but unless you change the policies, you know, you're still stuck with the same kind of problem. So we just tried as much as possible not to personalise it. I think that um, one of the great strengths of CND is that it stands for principles. It's motivated by a love for humanity and to sort of introduce kind of a kind of element of hatred, you know, or sort of targeted campaigning, I think would go against the ethos of CND. Yeah, I think, in, and in one respect, they're, they're already named and shamed because every time they vote, you can see you voted for and against it. I think I remember The Guardian the day afterwards, or, well, many of the papers listed all the people who rebelled and voted against it. So, in one sense, 
I'd be for the opposite of that, which is celebrating when people do it and actually giving them some recognition. So there are some names there you wouldn't have expected to see. I mean, I was pretty surprised to see see a couple of people there. I mean, I expect Jeremy Corbyn to, to be there, but you know, there were sort of some significant sort of big names who, who rebelled, and and it, it was better to see that than anything else. Um, I mean, yeah, in, in one sense, every time uh, a media spokesperson, a politician says something anti-nuclear, it's, it's clear and it's in the public, their voting record is there. I, I mean, I would be interested in one respect to see if any are living sort of near, near nuclear bases and that kind of thing, but I imagine it's very few, which is probably part of the problem as well. But you did touch on the, on the thing of nuclear power as well, and, and we shouldn't forget that. There is, there is a, an institutional link between the two, and that nuclear power is, is they want to bring on the way back in, and that is a very, very dangerous thing as well. So I don't know if, um, well, that's my opinion anyway. Um, I, I think, I imagine the majority of people are quite aware of, of this, the equal kind of stupidity of nuclear weapons, not just from the fact that they don't solve climate change at all. They actually are quite carbon intensive and we're running out of uranium in, in about 40 years, but, but it's also a security issue as well. Nuclear weapons, are, nuclear power stations are quite a, a good, you know, if you bomb a nuclear power station with conventional weapons, you're going to cause more damage. So um, it, they are linked, and they are linked not only, not only by the name nuclear, but also by institutional and real social and economic links as well. So we need to be clear about that. Uh, following on from that, if in fact uh, you bomb uh, a nuclear silo, and unless it's very deep down, you could do an enormous amount of damage. Now, the United States say that their, their silos and in consequence ours are very deep down, but this doesn't necessarily apply to all the proliferators, including the proliferators which are stimulated by the United States. And you see, this, and I also want to come back on something which I said before, because the United States, for the time being, hasn't accepted the goal of universal nuclear disarmament and is not encouraging nuclear-free zones. It actually is encouraging dependent nuclear powers. Now, our so-called deterrent is completely dependent. It's, it relies on American targeting and it relies on American missiles. The Indians are frightened of the Pakistanis. They would prefer a nuclear-free zone in that part of the world. But that would have to include Israel, which has got a dependent nuclear weapon sponsored by the United States, which incidentally uh, forced it to abandon an independent one and put in a dependent one. And uh, it also includes Iran, which hasn't got one. But if you had a nuclear-free zone, that would make India and Pakistan safer. But if you haven't got it, India was playing what they think is safety, and the United States, in order to maintain its monopoly, was deliberately breaking the non-proliferation treaty by encouraging India to have a dependent nuclear weapons and it's done the same to Pakistan. Now this is part of the complications of the problem. It's something of course which we have got
to expose. But it doesn't mean that these states are not in favor of nuclear disarmament, because they would be safer, uh, you know, with a nuclear-free zone there. They know that they, and they know that they cannot match the delivery systems of the United States. It is quite impossible. So, you know, what we've got to do is we've got to persuade the United States to go however cautiously uh, towards global nuclear disarmament, and with the changing opinion, this may be possible. But there are countertrends. It's very complicated. But essential to that is that we abandon our own nuclear weapons and become a protagonist for global nuclear disarmament, which we cannot be. We cannot be while we pretend uh, to have this uh, never-independent uh, deterrent which doesn't deter. Well, I think on that note, I'd like to uh, wrap up the discussion. But before we go, um, I'm sure you all know that uh, many of the uh, CND archives are held here at the LSE, and I'd like to ask Sue Donnelly, who's the archivist, to um, say a few words about those archives and about the exhibition that she has put up outside. Yes, I'd like to uh, thank the panel for a really interesting evening. Um, as you've been sitting here, you've been seeing uh, a whole array of images on the screen behind. And those are taken from the archives here at LSE. Um, we're in, we're in, in a 15-month project at the moment um, to promote and catalogue and put online the archives of CND. We've just finished phase one, uh, which has included the production of a touring exhibition, which is on display uh, downstairs. And I hope you'll take a look at that before you go out. The idea is we hope that local uh, regional groups and special interest groups will take that exhibition and put it on display in their local areas. It's uh, quite small, it'll fit in a corner of a library or a church hall or whatever. Um, so we're hoping that will, will go out around the country. We're starting phase two now, which is to bring together the really rich archive which is here at LSE along with some of the things that are still in the National Office up in the Holloway Road, and to bring them all together here at LSE with an online catalogue, and we're also going to be digitising some of the items so that they're available online. And they'll join many of our other uh, peace movement uh, archives here at LSE, which include European Nuclear Disarmament, um, the National Peace Council, and the Fellowship of Reconciliation. So we're developing a really big resource uh, for the study of this kind of area. So I hope as you go out, you'll go downstairs, take a look at the exhibition, um, and if you want to ask anything about it, I'll be down there, and also my colleague Ruth Brendo, who's actually done all the work to produce that fantastic exhibition. Thank you. I forgot to say that uh, Sue also wrote a short article in a recent issue of History Today, and there's several copies outside, and you're very welcome to take one if, there's, if they're still there. Uh, at which point I think we should uh, thank all the speakers for their time. Thank you for your questions, and uh, let's go and look at the exhibition. Thank you very much. Thank you.